Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Study. I am now going to take up Luke chapter 22. The timing is after the Olivet Discourse, which happened Tuesday in the late afternoon, and now we're in Tuesday evening, which of course is the Jewish Wednesday. This is according to A.T. Robertson's Harmony. We are going to skip the parables that Jesus gave at the end of his Olivet Discourse, all of which are recorded in Matthew. All of these parables have a common theme. Jesus is going to go away for a long time, and so you need to be watchful and ready because he's going to come back. For example, the parable of the porter, the parable of the master of the house, the parable of the faithful servant and the evil servant, the parable of the ten virgins, and the parable of the sheep and the goats. Now, preterists and futurists disagree on which of these parables refer to the long time that the master has gone away, referring to the end, the long time between then and the end of the world, or the long time between then and AD 70. Some preterists disagree also. Kenneth Gentry famously takes the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, I think it's at verse 36, and he switches it to the future. I don't think he's right in doing that, because all of these parables talk about a long time the master's been away. Forty years is a long time when considered in comparison to or relative to a person's lifetime. So the people who are hearing Jesus talk, it would be a long time before he came back and delivered them from their persecution. Now, the only one of these parables I have trouble fitting in with that scheme is the sheep and the goats. And I one time have, in my mind, at some point, convinced myself that the sheep and the goats actually refers to 8072. But most of that argument is based on the context. All the other parables are fitting in right with the context of a 8070 coming of Jesus to bring judgment on the rabbinic kingdom that crucified him and was crucifying the prophets and was continuing to persecute his apostles from synagogue to synagogue. But all of that is left out of Luke. And so now we go to Luke 22, and we are now in the nighttime after the Olivet Discourse. In my discussion in Matthew, I had the story of Jesus anointing, of Mary of Bethany anointing Jesus at the home of Simon the leper is taking place on Thursday. A.T. Robertson has it on Tuesday night. People disagree on how on the timeline on Passion Week. I'm going to assume that Robertson was right. I wasn't using Robertson when I went over the same story in Matthew, so I could have been wrong back then. But at any rate, we're going to, and for the sake of this audio, we're going to assume that we're now at Tuesday night. Now, Luke doesn't talk about the anointing of Jesus in the home of Simon the leper by Mary of Bethany. So that's not going to be of issue to us. It starts out in Matthew 22 just talking about the fact that the bad guys, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, were in Jerusalem plotting his death. I discussed that in the first five verses of Matthew 26. And so I'm going to splice that discussion in here, and that splice begins now. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm beginning in Matthew 26. We're still on the Mount of Olives with Jesus and his disciples. He's given them the Olivet Discourse in chapter 24 of Matthew. In chapter 25, he's given them three parables that are directly related to the Olivet Discourse, namely the taking away. Where uh, Matthew 24 is about the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem and taking away of the kingdom from the Jews and giving it to the Gentile church. And then we get to Matthew 25. There's three parables that talk about, that encourage the disciples to keep working for the kingdom while they wait during this time when Jesus is apart from them. And now we get into Matthew 26. Jesus, we hear about the plot against Jesus' life while Jesus is still on the Mount of Olives. The first five verses of Matthew 26 
take place on the Mount of Olives, which was Tuesday of Passion Week. Then verse 6 starts on Thursday of Passion Week. Wednesday is completely skipped over. And chapter 6 starts with the, the anointing of Jesus in the house of Simon the leper at Bethany. So that's the background. So let's get started with verse 1. Matthew 26, verse 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished saying all this, all what? All of what I just said. All of it discourse in the three parables in Matthew 25. When he finished saying all that, he told his disciples, You know that the Passover takes place after two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. This is one of the many, many, many places where Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. And they had such a hard time believing that. And especially when he talks about the timing of it. Two days from then, he was going to be crucified. In other words, he's saying to his disciples, I've got two days to live, guys. Oh, that must have been hard for them to handle. Now, he's, Jesus told them, you know that the Passover takes place after two days and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. What does that no refer to? What do the disciples know? Well, they know that the Passover takes place after two days. No problem with that. But did, do they really know that the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified? I don't think they did know that, actually. They, up until that point, they had shown remarkable obtuseness at the thought that Jesus might die. Peter at Caesarea Philippi, for example, re remonstrated until Jesus called him Satan. He kept saying, no, Lord, it, this shall never happen to you. You shall never die. And, Jesus, and, Peter, and Jesus told Peter, Satan, get behind me. The disciples, of course, were dreaming of worldly glory in a messianic kingdom. You recall earlier in the, in the, in the book of Matthew, James and John asked who was going to sit on Jesus' right hand in the kingdom as they came up there with, his, with their mother. So the disciples didn't, un, didn't really know that Jesus was going to be crucified. So I think what Jesus is referring to here is you know that the Passover takes place after two days. They did know that. They didn't know much else. It depends on whether you distribute that no over those two clauses. You know that when the Passover takes place, clause number one, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified, clause number two, does the you know, the you know does it refer to both clauses? I don't think so. I could be wrong. But at any rate, if he might have been saying, you know it because I told you, but they might only know it in their heads. They don't really know it in their hearts yet. Here's an example, Matthew 20, and I've got about seven or eight examples, I think. But here's one example, Matthew 20, verse 18, where Jesus tells them earlier, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem. This is while they're still in Galilee. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. So the disciples were directly told by Jesus what was going to happen. He's still telling them. Now, at the Passover is when he was going to die. And, of course, that is a perfect time. It's a perfectly appropriate time because Jesus is the Passover lamb sacrificed for the sins of the people. So the typology is perfect. The symbolism of the Old Testament is perfect. Now, when was this? Passover was the 14th of Nisan that year. It was two days from then. This was Tuesday, so Wednesday, Thursday. That's the traditional view. I will say that scholars will debate until the cows come home whether the whether it was Wednesday or Thursday night that the Passover took place. Now, of course, you've got the problem that Jewish day starts at night. So then my NIV study Bible says that the Passover actually started on the 15th of Nisan, which was Thursday night. Excuse me. Yes, Thursday night. There's so much disagreement on the timing of the Lord's Supper. Some say it was Wednesday evening. Some people say it was Thursday evening. I'm going to go with the tradition of you Thursday because this is way over my at my, per, at my current stage of ignorance, this thing is way over my head. This is for PhDs and New Testament studies to figure out. Some people say it involves different calendars. There's a problem between Matthew, the Synoptic Gospels timing and the Gospel of John and so forth. And some people say, well, Jesus couldn't have been killed on Friday. That's the first day of Passover because it was illegal to try somebody on Jesus. And that doesn't get 
convince me too much because a lot of the legal things happened at Jesus' trial. It was at night, for example. That was illegal. The witnesses, the, the witness procedure was illegal, too. There's all kinds of illegal things about that kangaroo court that condemned Jesus, so it doesn't, doesn't bother me that it was on Friday, according to the traditional view. But at any rate, like I say, I'm not going to get into that. We're going to assume that two days from now, on Thursday, they're going to get ready for the Passover meal, and when sundown, that was Friday night, 15th of Nisan, they would start the Passover. Now, another technical problem here, the word Passover. Sometimes it's used to describe one thing, sometimes another. It can refer to the day of Passover, or it can refer to the week following Passover. That week following Passover in the scriptures is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the Old Testament. But it directly followed on Passover day, and so those eight days got lumped together by custom, and after a while, people started calling Passover plus the Feast of Unleavened Bread those eight days. They would just call that Passover for short. Sometimes they would just say the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they would include Passover at the beginning. My NIV study Bible says that by the time of the New Testament, the term Passover and the term Feast of Unleavened Bread, those two terms are virtually interchangeable. Now, Jesus says the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. That's his messianic title that he used for himself, the most common title. It's used 81 times in the Gospels. It's never used by anybody else except Jesus. Other people use the term Son of David. The term is messianic. It comes from Daniel 7, 13 through 14, which is a key verse in understanding the Olivet Discourse, chapters 24 and 25. Daniel 7, 13 through 14 says this, I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. There's the coming. It's the coming up, not coming down. Jesus didn't worry about that little detail. Jesus, the son of man, approached the ancient of days. That was God and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory in a kingdom. So this is Jesus uh, entering into his kingdom which is appropriate here because in 8070 the idea is the church is going to be fully established when the rabbinic authorities are destroyed and Jesus will fully receive his kingdom. And Daniel goes on, so the people, those of every people, nation, and language to serve him, the spread to the Gentiles outside of the Jews. The spread of the kingdom to the Gentiles outside of the Jews, that fits perfectly with the idea of 8070 destroying the kingdom of the Jews who were hindering that spread. Daniel goes on to say his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So when Jesus talks about the Son of Man, he's talking about the Messiah. But isn't that kind of poignant? He's saying the Son of Man, the Messiah, will be handed over to be crucified. My Jewish people are going to crucify the Messiah. Amazingly ironic, tragic thing. Now notice that Jesus prophesies, and he prophesies accurately, the day of his death, as John Gill points out. And note how calmly he does it. Hey, guys. Two days from now, I'm going to be dead. Now, how does that square with the triumphal entry? This is Tuesday, just a few days, Monday, Sunday, a couple days earlier. It was the triumphal entry when they rode, when the people escorted him into Jerusalem shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king. Well, it could be that the Pharisees and the Sadducees suborned the crowd, suborned the crowd and changed their mind. Or it could be just a different people, a mob created by the chief priests and Pharisees. This is what Adam Clark believes. They went out and got their own anti-Jesus people, not the same people as the ones who were saying, Hosanna, he's the king. I think Clark probably makes a lot of sense. I don't think people would change their minds that fast about Jesus. Matthew 26, verse 3, Then the chief priest and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. So while Jesus is out there on the Mount of Olives, back in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders are conspiring to get Jesus killed. They are meeting in the palace of the high priest of the house of the high priest, Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas was the high priest from AD 18 to AD 36. 
His father-in-law was high priest from 6 AD to 15 AD, earlier. These two high priests are prominent in the trial of Jesus, so we need to remember their names. Caiaphas is the son-in-law. Annas is the father-in-law. Both of them were high priests at one time at different terms. Caiaphas was his surname. His given name was Joseph, so his name was Joseph Caiaphas. Now, an interesting fact about him that two years after he managed to get Jesus crucified, he was deposed from his high priestship, along with Pontius Pilate, who also had Jesus crucified. They got what, come, what was coming to them. The go, a governor of, of Syria named Vitellius, who's kind of famous because he's the fourth of the year of four emperors, for those who like Proto-Orthodoxy and like to study what happened in 68 and 69, right before AD 70, Vitellius was the fourth of those four emperors. He was, at this time, the governor of Syria. He, he deposed Caiaphas. Caiaphas then killed himself. This is cited in Josephus' Antiquities. John Gill speculates as why he killed himself. Perhaps he was disgraced at losing the high priesthood at the hands of Vitellius, or his conscience was stricken, stricken over killing the Son of God. I suspect it was the former. He didn't like losing the high priesthood. I don't think he had any remorse about killing Jesus. These people were too evil, too nasty. Now, the chief priests and the elders assembled in the palace of the high priests. Well, first of all, why were they meeting in the palace of the high priest? The normal meeting of the Sanhedrin was as a room in the temple. Well, this is not in the temple. This is in a private house, Caiaphas' house. Why didn't they meet in the Sanhedrin? Well, probably for privacy. After all, they were conspiring to commit murder, and when you conspire to commit murder, you probably don't want to do it in a public place. Word of the conspiracy might get out. Who were the chief priests and the elders? Well, there's some options on the chief priests. You could talk about former high priests. For example, Annas was a former high priest. Uh, you, the elders is probably referring to civil magistrates, the people who were in the Sanhedrin. Politics and religion is kind of close in Israel. The religious system was kind of separate from the political system. The Sanhedrin had a lot of religious people on it, but they mainly dealt with judicial matters. But, but theological matters came up also. But at any rate, these chief priests who could have been the former high priest. They also could have been heads of the 24 courses of priests that came in. Every two weeks, they would do a shift change for priests during the year. The heads, and each shift change was called a course, and it was 24 of them. It could refer to the 24 heads of the courses of the priests. It could have been chief, uh, regular priests who were also chosen to be a member of the governing body, the Sanhedrin, so they would be called chief priests because they were not just religious priests officiating in a religious capacity, but they were serving in a political capacity also. I think it's easier just to say it was the former high priest. I don't know what it is, but let's just put it this way. The political big shots and the religious big shots were out there trying to get Jesus. That's what they were doing. All at once, they were going to get him. Matthew 26, verses 4 through 5. And they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Treacherous way. In other words, not according to law. Not during the festival, they said, so they won't be rioting among the people. Remember, there are hundreds of thousands of people there. The population swelled from about 50,000 normally to several hundred thousand during the Passover feast, according to my NIV study Bible. It would, of course, be dangerous to arrest Jesus with such a large and excitable crowd present. It's ironic that's what they did do, according to most people. They did arrest Jesus on the Passover. And why? Because they had an opening when Judas betrayed Jesus and gave him information that would allow them to arrest him privately in the Garden of Gethsemane. But at first they were scared to arrest him because of so many people. And the people, of course, were behind Jesus, mostly. This conspiracy is 
referred to according to John Gill in Psalms chapter 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire against the Lord as anointed one. Of course, if you translate earth as land, which it writes... Retz in the uh, Old Testament is land or earth. The kings of the land take their stand. Or how about the rulers of the land take their stand and the rulers conspire together? That's referring to exactly what happened here. Annas, Caiaphas, the chief priest, and the elders. They conspired against, G- against Yahweh and his anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus. And I think Gil's right about that. I think that psalm predicts pretty well what's going on here. Now, this fact that they actually decided, ended up arresting him during the festival, even though they had planned not to arrest him during the Passover, it was actually providential because when they arrested him and crucified him, there were, there were hundreds of thousands of people in the city that could see what happened. Here's a quote from John Gill. It was doubtless of the very first importance that the crucifixion of Christ, which was preparatory to the most essential achievement of Christianity, viz. his resurrection from the grave, should be exhibited before many witnesses and in the most open manner that infidelity might not attempt in the future to invalidate the evidences of the Christian religion by alleging that these things were done in a corner. Oh, no, they were not done in a corner. There were hundreds of thousands of people there to see it. Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 7. We now shift from the Tuesday of Passion Week. We're now at on Thursday of Passion Week. This is according to uh, NET Harmony, Net Bible Harmony I'm using. We're on th- uh, thir- Wednesday, Jesus took a day off. Don't hear a thing about Wednesday, and I suspect Tuesday was a pretty exhausting day. It exhausted me getting through Matthew 24, 25, and the first five verses of 26, because Jesus and his disciples were doing an awful lot of stuff, and they were encountering an awful lot of opposition. All right, here I am again, returning from my splice of Matthew 26, the first five verses, which discussed the opposition of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem against Jesus. That covers the first couple of verses in Luke chapter 22. And now to cover Luke 22, 3 through 13, which is the preparation for the Last Supper and the story of Judas's betrayal of Jesus, that, those events covered in Luke 22, 3 through 13 are exactly paralleled in the discussion of Matthew 26, 14 through 25. And therefore, I'm going to splice in my discussion of Matthew 26, 14 through 25 right here. Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 25. We're going to talk about the betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot and the preparation of the Lord's Supper, the first Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. In the previous audio, verses 1 through 13 in Matthew 26, we discussed the anointing of Jesus at the house of Simon the leper, which was two days before this Passover, the Passover being on Thursday. So that event probably happened on Tuesday. Wednesday is skipped over. We don't know what happened on Wednesday. And now here we are on Thursday, chapter 26, verses 14 through 16. Matthew goes like this. Then one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him, and from that time he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Now when I said we were at Thursday, I meant Jesus' disciples. When we get to the preparation of the Passover, just a little few verses, that will be on Thursday. Now when, Jesus, when Judas went to the high priest to betray Jesus, it's not really clear when he did. It was sometime before the Last Supper. It could have been that Wednesday, but we don't know. But at any rate, Judas Iscariot, offered betray, and they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. This, of course, is famous in Western 
culture, how much is 30 pieces of silver? Well, it's equal to 120 denarii, according to my NIV study Bible, and a denarii is equal to a day's wage. So Jesus, the Son of God, was portrayed for four months' wages. That was the price of a slave, as John Gill and Adam Clark point out. Gill quotes Maimonides, the medieval Jewish scholar. Maimonides observes that the atonement of servants, slaves, whether great or small, whether male or female, the fixed sum in the law is 30 shekels of good silver, whether the servant is worth 100 pounds or whether he is not worth but a farthing. In other words, it was a fixed price for slaves. It was 30 pieces of silver. The pieces were coins, according to the NIV study Bible. And so that's, what, that's how the Jews valued Jesus. That's how much Judas valued Jesus. The price of a slave. He had spent years traveling around with Jesus, listening to him listening to the Son of God, and he decides he's not worth anything but a slave. Now, Judas was probably provoked by that woman that was wasting the valuable nard, the valuable oil, at the house of Simon. Well, that was not that he wasn't at Simon the leper. He was at another anointing of Jesus at the house of Mary and Lazarus, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Lazarus of Bethany. And he was there, and he said, Hey, woman, you poured this expensive oil on Jesus. You could have sold it and given it to the poor. Judas, of course, was a treasurer. He was motivated by greed and lust for money. Talk about the love of money being the root of all evil. He went to hell because he betrayed the Son of God. John 12, verse 6 says this concerning Judas. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. He was an embezzler. So he was stealing money on the sly. He was never an open enemy of Jesus. He just stabbed Jesus in the back when he had the chance. He's named Iscariot to distinguish him from the other Judas, Jude, who was an apostle and who was one of the twelve. I think he's probably one of the guy that wrote the book of Jude, but you have to distinguish. So we distinguish with his surname Iscariot, which I read somewhere is probably or could be referring to a place name. It's not really clear what Iscariot means. Matthew says that Judas is one of the twelve. Gill notes this little detail and says, This emphasizes the enormity of the betrayal. He was one of Jesus' closest companions. The 30 pieces of silver actually was prophesied about. Zechariah 11:12 says this, Then I said to them, If it seemed right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. So they weighed my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Now going back to Judas again, as far as the chronology of what he did, again, as I said earlier, it's unclear. In fact, there's a big controversy exactly when did he leave the table, when did he leave the Last Supper, but I'm going to use Gill's chronology here. Wednesday, he met with the high priest in order to make his deal for the 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus, and Thursday night, which was Passover night, then he goes to the Lord's Supper, then he leaves somewhere in that meal and delivers Jesus into their hands. Now, when he left that meal is controverted. We'll look at that immediately. But John 13, verse 30 says this, After receiving the piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. And that sounds like that's the salt that he dipped into the to the sauce with Jesus. So it sounds like he didn't finish that Passover meal. That is controverted, however. I'll mention that a little bit later. And then, of course, that Passover meal was, that day was Thursday. Friday started that night at evening, according to the Jewish chronology. So they ate on Friday night, the 15th of Nisan. The next day was Saturday well, he was killed that day on Friday and, of course, resurrected on Sunday. Now, let's look at some parallels of, of Judas going to the chief priest to make his deal, his deal with the devil. Verse Mark 14, verses 10 through 11, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard of it, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. 
Luke chapter 22, verses 3 through 6 says this, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. So we have a little detail there. The devil entered into Judas. Now, of course, the devil never enters into anybody unless you give him permission. So Judas is not relieved of his human responsibility for his and the heinous crime that he committed. As after all, a little bit, Jesus at the Last Supper is going to say, Woe unto you who has delivered over the Son of Man into the hands of the, those who killed him. He says, Woe unto you. Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, Luke says in chapter 22, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Of course, they couldn't have a crowd there because the crowd would have protected Jesus and stopped the arrest. And so Judas kept the Passover with Jesus, and that's when he figured out, oh, this is going to be a good time to betray Jesus because he's alone now outside of the presence of the crowd. Now, notice the chief priest didn't even have to ask Judas. Judas voluntarily, under no pressure, betrayed Jesus. As Gil says, this was a barbarous and shocking betrayal. Yes, it was. There's nothing worse than to be called a Judas. Now, where did Judas go in order to make his deal? Probably to Caiaphas' house, Caiaphas's house, the high priest's house, where the chief priests were consulting. He probably went there because at some point before this, when he was at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, this was six days before the Passover, the last Passover, he chastised that Mary for anointing Jesus' head with oil. Well, he wasn't concerned about the poor. He said, Mary, well, you could have sold that oil and given it to the poor. But he wasn't concerned about that. He was a, a greedy thief. And Jesus rebuked him for it. He said, hey, Mary's anointing my body for burial. Don't stop bothering this woman. So he's probably ticked off. He says, well, we'll see about that. I'm going to go betray him. He was evil from the beginning. And, of course, that asked, you ask this interesting theological question. If he was evil from the beginning, why did Jesus choose him? Jesus chose the very one who was going to kill him. Well, all that has to do with the foreknowledge and predestinating counsel of God, because Jesus was to be killed to take away the sins of the world. A horrible evil was done so that an incredible good could be done. And that's why he chose Judas, because God's plan had to be carried out. Matthew 26, verse 17, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare the Passover so you may eat it? Now, let's talk about unleavened bread and Passover. Passover was on 14th of Nisan, according to the law. The Feast of Unleavened Bread started on the 15th of Nisan and went to the 21st of Nisan. This year, the 14th of Nisan was on Thursday, most probably, according to majority opinion. And so... Those two feasts were run together. So in the common mind, if you said Passover, you meant 14th of Nisan, or you could mean 14th, 15th, 16th, all the way to the 21st of Nisan. You would include Passover with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Or if you said Feast of Unleavened Bread, you could be including Passover with it, which is technically the first day before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In other words, the technical definition of Passover and Unleavened Bread that was given in the Mosaic Law had changed by the time of Jesus in popular parlance, and people were just running those two together. And this is important to understand a little bit of the chronology of what's going on here. On the first day of unleavened bread, and that would be the 14th of Nisan, because unleavened bread refers to the whole the whole 
eight-day holiday here, including Passover. So the first day of unleavened bread is Passover, the 14th of Nisan. That was also called preparation of the Passover because they prepared it on the 14th of Nisan, but they didn't get around to eating it until sun had set. And by that, and according to Jewish reckoning, the, uh, when you, the sun sets, the day rolls over. So it was the 15th of Nisan in the evening. That's according to my NIV study Bible. And I know that scholars spill gallons of ink talking about chronology of the Passover. And I'm not going to get into that. It's over my head. But this is the, the chronology I'll accept. Let me read you Leviticus 23, 5 through 6. This is where the law establishes the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leviticus 23, verse 5. The Passover to the Lord comes in the first month, that's Nisan, at twilight on the 14th day of the month. The festival of unleavened bread to the Lord is on the 15th day of the same month. For seven days you must eat unleavened bread. So the Passover is on the 14th day of the month. The unleavened bread starts the next day and it lasts for seven more days. We can see this confusion of the of the term Passover and, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Mark chapter 14, verse 12, a parallel passage. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. Well, they didn't sacrifice the Passover lamb on the first day of unleavened bread, according to Leviticus, according to the technical definition. They, they sacrificed the Passover lamb on Passover day, 14th, at any rate. The unleavened bread memorialized their hasty departure from Egypt. That was part of the Passover meal because they had no time to prepare the bread by leavening it. Now, what disciples did Jesus send? Chapter 17, I read, just read that verse. I think I read that verse. Matthew 26, verse 17. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare the Passover so you may eat it? This is on Thursday. And which who which disciples were they? Well, they were Peter and John. We look at the parallel passage in Luke 22, verse 8. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover meal for us so we can eat it. So Jesus sent two of his disciples, Peter and John, into Jerusalem to prepare the meal. In Luke chapter 22, 8 through 9, a parallel passage, we see this. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover meal for us so we can eat it. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. So Jesus told them to go first, and then they asked the question, Where? Chapter 26, verses 18 through 19. Go into the city to a certain man, he, Jesus said, and tell him, tell this certain man, the teacher says, my time is near. I am celebrating the Passover to replace with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover, the disciples being Peter and John. Go into the city, that's Jerusalem, because they were outside of Jerusalem at Bethany or on the Mount of Olives somewhere at this time. We don't know exactly where. And he said, go tell them the teacher says. Well, this person, this unknown man that they were going to meet, he's going to be carrying a jug of water, they're supposed to be told by Peter and John, the teacher says. Well, the teacher sounds an awful lot like Jesus. In fact, teacher is capitalized in the Holman Christian Study Bible version, teacher, the teacher. So that gives us a hint, according to my NIV Study Bible, that this man in the city where the Passover is going to be prepared was a secret disciple of Jesus. He was a follower of Jesus. So when it says a certain man, how did Peter and John know who this certain man was going to be? We will look at the parallels, Luke 22, verses 10. Listen, he said to them, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters. The man carrying the water jug. Mark 14, 13 says the same thing. A man carrying a water jug. Now, a man carrying a water jug would stick out because only, usually only women carried water jugs, so says my NIV study Bible. Now, Jesus is probably using his divine omniscience here to know exactly when the man was leaving and when the disciples would arrive. That's, I don't think any human knowledge could have 
could have done that. I, I mentioned that because people always like to speculate, was Jesus operating out of his humanity or his divinity? I think it was his divinity here. What did they have to do to prepare the Passover? Oh, by the way, before we do that, this person, this man that Peter and John are supposed to meet, some speculations about him. John Gill says he's probably a servant, not the master of the house, because a servant would be carrying a water jug, not the master. He was probably someone with whom Jesus was well acquainted. We've already speculated he was a disciple of Jesus because Jesus says to tell him the teacher. But he was probably also somebody that Jesus knew and who was known to the disciples, according to Adam Clark. So Jesus apparently had made previous arrangements with the owner of the house, according to the NIV Study Bible, so that when these two guys showed up and asked for the use of the house, the owner of the house would say, you're crazy, buddy, go find your own house. I, I used to always wonder why a stranger would just let two strangers come up and say, sure, you can use my house. Well, that's why. It's because they probably weren't strangers. They probably made previous arrangements. Jesus says, tell him my time is near. Tell him, tell this man, my time is near. In other words, my time of crucifixion is near. Now, the place where this man had his house probably had different rooms, one room of which his family would celebrate the Passover in, and the other room the disciples were going to celebrate the Passover in. Now, Peter and John went and prepared the Passover on that Thursday. What did they have to do? Well, they had to go find a lamb. They had to go buy a lamb somewhere. They had to carry it to the temple to have it slain in the courtyard. Then they had to skin the lamb. Then they had to burn it on the altar. Then they had to have its blood sprinkled at the feet of the altar. Then they had to bring the meat to the house of the man who was carrying the water jug, the place where the Passover was going to be held. Then they had to get bread, wine, and bitter herb, herbs and the ingredients for the Karoseth sauce. I hope I pronounced that right, which I'll talk about in a minute, the sauce at Passover. They had to do a lot of work, but they did it. Now, why did Jesus have the Passover done at this house? It was, of course, done secretly. Nobody knew where he was. Well, he wanted to be sure that the Passover meal would not be interrupted, according to my V Study Bible. So I started speculating, well, who would interrupt this Passover? Well, how about people seeking healing or seeking teaching? People were always clamoring to hear Jesus, so that he needed to have privacy from that. How about Judas, who was trying to betray him? Jesus, Judas couldn't tell the authorities where the supper was, the last supper was, because he didn't know when he made that deal to sell him for 30, betray him for 30 pieces of silver he didn't know where to tell the chief priest to find Jesus so Jesus might have actually chosen this place the way he did in order to throw Judas off the scent so he could have time with his disciples for the last supper this of course assumes that Jesus was aware of Judas intentions which I believe he was I don't have any proof of it surely he must have known that Judas was trying to betray him he was a snake in the grass and Jesus is smart enough to detect snakes even if they're hiding in the grass and even if he wasn't trying to hide from Judas he would have known Jesus that he was in danger in Jerusalem because the place was crawling with Pharisees and Sadducees who were trying to kill him. So he needed to have a secret place to have the Passover, and that's why he made this arrangement with the men carrying the water jug. Matthew chapter 26, verses 20 through 21. When evening came, this is Thursday evening, he, he was reclining at the table with the twelve. Thursday evening, which of course flips the date over to the 15th of Nisan. He was reclining at the table with the twelve. That's what they did back then when they ate. They reclined. Interestingly enough, the first Passover meal, this is, the, this is a Passover meal, the original Passover meal they took standing up. Let me read that, Exodus 12, verse 11. Here's how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You're to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. Get out of town before the Egyptians got them, and so they ate standing up. But anyway, they were reclining at this table with the twelve. Now, notice it's the twelve. Now, sometimes that word 12 just means the apostles, and it doesn't actually mean that there's actually 12 in the number. 
forgot where, I think it was after the disciples after Judas had betrayed, had been killed, killed himself. The disciples are referred to as the 12, I think. Don't hold me to that. That's my memory. I could be wrong. I know one time they were called the 11. But at any rate, it does indicate possibly that G- Judas had already had returned from his dirty business with a high priest in order to carry out his plans. Now, why did he go? I mean, at any rate, we know he was there. Later on, we know Judas was at the table, so it's not an issue. He was at the table, and you ask yourself, why was he there? Why would he go back and be with Jesus when, uh, when he had already gone to the high priest? Well, he needed to, to carry out his plans. He needed to avoid suspicion so that nobody would know that he was what he was doing. None of the disciples would know, and then they might potentially squirrel Jesus out of harm's way. He needed to get intelligence of where Jesus would go after the supper because he's looking for a place where Jesus is alone so that the high priest can send their temple guard to arrest him. So he needed to know where he was going. He needed to see when the best time would be to betray Jesus to the priest, in other words. And so he had to go to the Lord's Supper to find all this out so he could go back and report it to the high priest. So basically what happened, let me just read you a quote from John Gill. In the afternoon, this is Thursday afternoon, it is very reasonable to suppose Christ set out from Bethany with the rest of the twelve, with the other nine, and came to Jerusalem where they were joined by Judas, who had covenanted with the chief priest to betray him possibly the day before, and by Peter and John, who had gone in on Thursday, who had been sent before to prepare the Passover, that was Thursday. And when it was night, when the second evening it took place, when it had gotten dark, in other words, he went with all 12 of them to the house where the provision to eat the Passover together was made for them. All right, so they're all 12 sitting there, reclining there. There, Jesus then solemnly pronounces them. What a way to start the Last Supper. What a way to start this joyous Passover meal. While they were eating, he said, I assure you, one of you will betray me. Now, you can imagine that went over like a lead balloon. What a slap in the head that was. What a shock it must have been on such a happy occasion. I don't know if it was how happy it was. They were probably nervous about what was going on because they were either thinking about there's going to be a messianic kingdom or they were thinking about there's going to be trouble because Jesus had told them he was going to be killed over and over and over again. I don't know exactly what the disciples were thinking. Maybe they weren't so happy after all. Maybe they were nervous. But at any rate, Jesus said, one of you will betray. Now, Jesus had already told them that he was going to be at least killed, possibly even betrayed. Let's let's read Matthew 20, verse 18. Listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is when they were still in Galilee. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And Matthew 26, verse 2 says, you know that the Passover takes place after two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Handed over, that's at least a hint that one of the disciples would betray him because he would be handed over. Now, John Gill claims that Peter and John alone of the disciples actually understood what Jesus meant by handed over. And I I don't know how Gill knows that. Gill knows a lot of things. He's a good speculator. But at any rate, there's enough of uh, mystery going on at this Last Supper to really cause a lot of anxiety, especially when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. In Matthew 26, verse 22, deeply distressed, each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. As I said, it was a pretty big shock, and they were deeply distressed. Now, why were they distressed? Well, they could have been distressed for two reasons. One, that Jesus would be betrayed by anyone. Just in general, what? You mean Jesus is going to die because he was betrayed? Someone's going to turn him over? And the second reason they could be distressed is because the betrayal would be by one of his disciples, one of the people who had traveled with him for three and a half years, and who loved him so much. This is an unheard of thought. Now, I'm thinking that maybe the disciples were questioning their manhood in face of coming persecution. They might be thinking, well, you know, I love Jesus and I don't want to betray him, but what if I get frightened? 
under torture? What if I get arrested and I'm afraid to stand up for Jesus? I wouldn't be surprised if they were worried about that. I would have been because I'm a coward, and I'm sure they thought they were cowards too. They were cowards. They proved it until the Holy Spirit fell, and they became extremely bold. Now, at this point, Judas was probably acting like he was distressed too, Adam Clark points out. He was probably foolish enough. This is me, not Adam Clark. He was probably foolish enough to think that Jesus couldn't figure out who betrayed him. This is the same Jesus who had made the blind to see and raise people from the dead. And Judas had seen all that, and he still, I want the money. Just amazing to me how evil people are. Now, all of those, each one beginning to say that's the other 11, Judas himself is going to say the same thing when we get down to verse 5. Now, let's get some more details of this event in John chapter 13, verse 21 through 29. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, son of Zebedee, one of them was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. They're pretty curious. Which one of us is going to kill Jesus? Leaning back against Jesus, that's John, he, John, asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus, Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. So Jesus is going to let them know who the snake in the grass is. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So he had secretly told Peter and John, who was going? Who the betrayer was going to be? Then he publicly did it when he dipped bread with Judas. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And again, Satan never enters into somebody unless you give it permission. Judas let Satan in, into him voluntarily. So Jesus told him, "What you are about to do, do quickly. Go ahead and get it over with, traitor." So Ju Judas knew that Jesus knew. No one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. So they didn't quite, still didn't quite understand that Judas was going to betray him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or give something to the poor. So they didn't really understand yet. Now, the question arises here, why would they not understand? Peter asked John to ask him, who is it? And Jesus said, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread I've dipped in the dish. They still didn't understand, even though Jesus gave him advance warning, this is the guy that's going to betray me. And you might say, well, maybe Peter and John understood, but the other nine let's see the other nine disciples nine apostles did not understand but it said john says right here in 13 uh somewhere near the end of this passage verses 21 through 21 but no one at the meal understood why jesus said this to him so apparently there's still confusion and this happens all the time when jesus describes something to his disciples matthew chapter 26 verse 23 he jesus replied we're going back to matthew now we're leaving john's account the one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. So this is where Peter and John are tipped off. Now let's talk about this dipping. Dipping was the custom to take bread or meat wrapped with bread and dip it into a bowl of sauce, according to my NIV study Bible, which also says that this sauce was made of stewed fruit. Now John Gill calls this sauce the Charaseth sauce. And he says that the unleavened bread at the Passover or the bitter herbs or both the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs were dipped into this sauce, this Haraseth sauce. He gives a description of the sauce, quote, it was made of figs, nuts, almonds, and other fruits to which they added apples, all which they bruised in a mortar and mixed with vinegar and put spices in it, into it, calamus and cinnamon in the form of small, long threads in remembrance of the straw. And it was necessary it should be thick in memory of the clay. Talking about Israelite slavery in Egypt. 
And that sure sounds good. That sounds like a wonderful sauce. This dipping was done twice at Passover, says John Gill. Normally it was only done once at an ordinary meal. Now how, there's another question that arises here, how could this be a signal that Judas was the one who was going to betray Jesus? A signal to James, to, to Peter and John. How? Because everybody's going to be dipping. So how is Judas picked out, singled out as the one who is going to betray? Well, because Jesus probably spoke the words right at the time that Judas was dipping the bread into the sauce. There were probably two or three of these bowls of sauce at the table. Judas was probably sitting near Jesus and dipped with Jesus in the bowl close to them. This is according to John Gill, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Adam Clark says, as Judas is represented as dipping in the same dish with Christ, it shows that he was either near or opposite to him. Because, as the Jews ate the Passover as a whole family together, it was not convenient for them all to dip their bread in the same dish. They therefore had several little dishes or plates in which was the juice of the bitter herbs on different parts of the table, and those who were nigh near one of these dipped their bread in. So Jesus, Judas is sitting next to Jesus. He dips his bread into the sausages, and the dipping was probably a sign of special intimacy. As Adam Clark says, in the East, persons never eat together from one dish, except when a strong attachment subsists between two or more persons of the same caste. So Judas and Jesus were engaging in an act of intimate fellowship. And of course, eating a meal was considered an, uh, an intimate deal in the East. It's like I, I lived in China for 23 years, and I want to tell you something. That Eastern culture, it really is true. It's, it's so funny. You'd sit down at a meal, and all of a sudden you realize that seven or eight people have taken food off your plate. But don't, don't feel bad about it, because seven or eight other people are putting food back on your plate. Everything is hush, yeah, harmonious. You eat it together. But at any rate, it was an Eastern custom back then, according to my NIV study Bible, to eat with somebody is the same as saying, I'm your friend and I won't hurt you. I mean, that, I mean, I know that. For that for China is an Eastern culture, and by golly, I mean, and when I got turned down one time for trying to teach some college students about charismatic stuff, and oh, you know, you know danger. we charismatics are dangerous, according to John MacArthur. We're going to destroy people. Well, anyway, some law professor at a college who was kind of looking after these kids uh, decided he didn't want my friend and I to come speak to this group. So we got on a bus, traveled 70 miles, paid for the trip, all getting ready to teach, and all of a sudden we're taken out to this fancy restaurant, and we were fed the most delicious delicacies. We were taken to another room where we were fed some more, I think it was, I don't forget, juice or wine and some water, you know, and chat, 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 chat. I, and I'm thinking, we're not going to have time to teach these kids. And all of a sudden the guy smiled at us and says, uh, we don't want you to teach these college kids because they're not going to just tell you. They're going to try to be close to you and let you down easy and save your face. Eating together with somebody in the East was considered very, very trusting and intimate. Psalm 41.9 says this, Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me, which sounds like that's a psalm that was prophetic of what Judas did. Matthew chapter 26, verse 24, Jesus continues talking to Judas, The Son of Man will go just as is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus in this verse uses his messianic title, the Son of Man, that he always used of himself. He will go, he will leave this world to go to his father, he will die and ascend to heaven, just as it is written about him. Where was it written? Well, he's probably referring to the suffering servant passage in Isaiah, according to my NIV study Bible, 
the famous passage in Isaiah 53, second half of verse 2 to verse 5. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. He could have been referring to that. He could have been referring to Psalm 22, verse 1. John Gill suggests this, where Jesus, where the psalmist says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? Or it could be Daniel 9, the famous 70 weeks passage, uh, which uh, John Gill suggests also. Anyway, there's plenty of scriptures that talk about Jesus dying and going to heaven. There's three of them right there. So the Son of Man says, look, it's already been written. It's already been prophesied. It's fixed in the predeterminate counsel of God. However, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And again, I like this because it shows that even though things have been predetermined before the counsel of the world, human beings are still responsible for the evil that they do. And killing Jesus, of course, was a horrendous evil. And Jesus said, woe to him. It would have been better for the man he had not been born. Why? Because he's going to hell. It would be better that you had not been born than if you go to hell. This was a common rabbinical saying, by the way, it's better for that man if he had not been born. Now, Jesus would not have used this phrase if there was any chance of redemption from hell. Like Heretics like to say, well, we're not really going to stay there forever. We're going to work our way back out again and that kind of thing. A loving God wouldn't do that. A just God would. No, it's an eternity. It doesn't stop. It goes on forever and ever. And Judas earned that for himself. It's really tragic, but he did. Matthew 26, verse 25. Then Judas, his betrayer, replied, Surely not I, Rabbi. What a hypocrite. Lying through his teeth, or just being a hypocrite openly. Surely not I, Rabbi. You have said it, he, Jesus, told him, and you have said it is just the, it's an idiomatic way of saying, You got it. You got that right. Yes, he affirmed what Judas said. So, Judas now knows that Jesus knows that what Judas is about to do. All right, I have now returned from my splice of Matthew 26, verses 14 through 25, which discusses what Luke 22, 3 through 13 discusses, namely, the preparation of the Last Supper and the betrayal of Judas. I'm finished with this audio. We will talk about the Last Supper in the next audio. I hope you listen to that one. I hope you enjoyed this one. 